just wanted to um, honor my parents and my mother-in-law, Margie, for being here. You know, it goes unnoticed, but when we're doing something in church, they're here to support. And there's something so beautiful about having parents that love the Lord and imparted that into your lives and imparted that into the grandkids. So thank you. Just thank you. We honor you. You've, you've put something else down to be here. So thank you. And last week, um, Laura beautifully took us out of our comfort zones around technology and um, showed us what the old temple looked like. And that detail was, was copied from heaven. But it ultimately pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. And just to remind you, like... Uh, a will is enacted by the death of someone, so the new covenant was enacted by the death of Jesus. And Laura so beautifully said, we get to move from an old pattern of worship to a new pattern. And the thing is this, that the sin doesn't go away, right? But the debt's been paid for. And because of that atonement, there's, there's forgiveness of sins. And I was thinking, what, what's a good example of that? Imagine, imagine if you owed the bank 100 million rand in debt, Okay. And you'd done everything in your power to repay the bank. And you were scraping all of your resources together, paying your whole salary, and you're just covering a smidgen of the interest. You've sold all of your possessions, and you still can't repay the bank. And then someone comes along and says, actually, I'll pay your bank. The debt's gone. You phone up the bank the next day, and you say, um, can you look up you know, the Evans account, please? Um, I thought I owed you 100 million rand. And the bank says, I have no debt on record. It is fully paid. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what Laura's preach was all about last week, the sacrifice of Jesus. Your debt is paid. Your debt is paid. And then did you ever wonder why the Lord allowed this most amazing temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed? And Laura brought this through last week as well. Well, guess what? The useful purpose of the temple was over. It was no longer needed. That's why it was destroyed. And Jesus prophesied this. And then this morning, as I was doing final preps, it's like thinking, what was the very first sign that the new covenant was coming? Exactly, Humphrey. The veil was torn. And as the veil was torn, just think about it. The veil was torn, and God himself, the presence of God, was released from the Holy of Holies. Woof! into the world. And what's the next thing that happens in the scripture? You can go read it if you don't believe me. Matthew 27, 51 and 52. The very next thing that happens is what? Resurrection. Boom. The power of God is released and then there's resurrection. And all these old saints are resurrected and they're waltzing to Jerusalem. Now the Bible never tells us who they were or what they said, but resurrection comes. And uh, it's just amazing. So there we go. That's what divided the old and the new that moment. So join me this morning as we jump straight into the text, and uh, I'm going to read through the scripture with you, and then we'll dive right into it. So, it's uh, Christ's sacrifice once for all, and I'm reading to you from Hebrews chapter 10, 1 to 18. So, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, Make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? Yeah, good point. For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. 
but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yo, this is written to the Hebrews, right? We're also Jews. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And, and the writer says, Well, first he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's quite a confusing piece of scripture, and we'll unpack it. And then this bit is, is um, yeah, we should all relate to it. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Yo, that's complicated. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where, there has, where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Amazing. So, Charmaine, please help me. Boys, I'm going to kick off with a little skit. Charmaine, please turn off all the lights or somebody else. I don't know. I've lost Charmaine. Oh, Charmaine's outside. Thanks, Dale. Can we go? Jaden. Let's see how dark we can make this place. Jaden. Jaden, let's go to the wall. Go to the wall. Okay. Is that as dark as it gets? Let's see if this works. We'll try. Okay. There we go. Aha, perfect. There we go. Jaden, I love you. Oh, it's so good to see you. I love you, my boy. I love you. Mwah, 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 mwah. Oh, one more. Mwah. I love you, my boy. Oh, I love you. I love you. Hold on, big guy. Thank you, Dale. How underwhelming was that? <laughs> hey? I never got to embrace and feel my son. He never felt the warmth of my skin. I didn't get to give him a kiss. That was so underwhelming. That was so inferior. That's what the law is like. It's a shadow. It's a shadow. It looked sort of like me. Sort of. But it hardly had the detail. And I won't say beauty because I'm talking about myself. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Didn't have the substance. Had, didn't have the substance. Thanks, my love. Thank you. Thank you. 
So you see here that that shadow is so unsubstantial. And the repetition of the law is actually a mark of its failure. And if you think about it, if you're trying to fix yourself, it's like hugging the shadow. It doesn't work. It's impossible. And so as a result, the old covenant was actually more of a reminder of the Israelites' sins, and it was like the stick that beat them. So it was a reminder of their inability that they could no longer stop sinning and they could not fix themselves. Remember Laura's example of the defender. And the reality was that the blood of animals only covered their sins. It did not provide for full payment. Like that loan at the beginning. You're only servicing some of the interest, but the debt keeps getting bigger. And if you look closely at the law, the, the blood covered up the issues. And then there were some sins that you got excommunicated for, driven out the community. And there were other sins that you got stoned for because the blood of the animals was not good enough. It was a highly imperfect system. We forget that. So the price for sin was death in the old covenant. Guys would get stoned. And then this thing of, um, and if I just go back. They repeated, you see this here, repeated endlessly year after year to make perfect those who draw near to worship. And I'd never seen this before. What the law failed to do is it was not able to make adequate worshipers. And that's, I'd never seen it. Imagine what it felt like to be like, we're not adequate. We're not able to come into your Holy of Holies we have to go through the priests and all of these rituals. We can never come close to you. That's how the Israelites felt. And it must have been a terrible feeling. And they knew they couldn't make themselves good enough. And I just want to deal with this idea that we have. There's a, I don't know if, if, if you've come across the Eucharist or what people call the Holy Communion or Mass. And there's this idea that when you take communion, you take the cup of wine and you take the bread, that it's an ongoing sacrifice. And some people believe it's an ongoing sacrifice. And this passage of Scripture just absolutely just destroys that idea. Because if you think every time you take communion, it's an ongoing sacrifice, what you're saying is the sacrifice of Jesus was not good enough. It can't be right. And then your desire for this ritual denies the power of the blood. And you're basically saying that the blood of Jesus was the same as the blood of an animal. Yo. Not good. You see, religion looks harmless, but it's dangerous. And the opportunity cost is enormous if you're not careful, you vaporize the power of the blood of Jesus through ritual. So, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He took in his own blood, not that of an animal. The sacrifice never needs to be repeated. And the sinner who accepts the sacrifice of Jesus is forgiven eternally. Now you see, in the old covenant, they would bring the lambs and the priest would inspect them to find a perfect one. Then they would do all their rituals. And the high priest 
would go into the Holy of Holies with fear and trembling, and like Laura said, he had bells on his robe, and if they stopped ringing, they knew he died. And they'd pull him out by the rope that was tied to his ankle. But that death of the high priest was actually a shadow of the fact that Jesus would have to die. Because the penalty of sin is death. And the penalty had to be paid. So Jesus did not deserve death, but he took it on our behalf. All right, you with me? Cool. Let's jump into the next piece of scripture. So, therefore, so we're reading from verse 5. Therefore, so we've talked about all these rituals, and now we explain this is built on what I've just explained. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And it's a relatively complicated piece of scripture. And uh, it goes on there to speak about an open ear. If I'm not mistaken, um, where have I lost myself? No, I've got myself confused here. Apologies. Now, when you look at this piece of scripture, you're saying, well, weren't the offerings and sacrifices your idea, God? So how come weren't you pleased with them? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And really what what the text is trying to say is the original plan, the original design did not envisage a system of sacrifice. It was not God's best plan. It came in because of sin. It came in because of the fall. And it also speaks to the fact that the system had become abused and it was misused by the priests and the Pharisees. But it it wasn't God's first plan. And then there's this verse 9 where you just skip right past it. And I want to show it to you. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. And he sets aside the first to establish the second. So basically, 5, 6, 7, and 8 are saying they needed to be sacrificed, they needed to be burnt offerings. And Jesus says, Jesus and the Father say, it's our will that Jesus becomes the sacrifice. Okay, That's in a nutshell what it's saying. And then Jesus comes and he says, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Now, you look at that text and you go, okay, that's nice. Sets aside. Soft language. I set this aside. That's what we think in English, right? But it doesn't mean that. It means abolished, nullified, void, No longer necessary. The old covenant is poof. Gone. Kaput. See, the new new covenant replaces the old. It's gone. It's been abolished. The mosaic system is now redundant. It is no longer of use to mankind. It is finished. And that is why the temple is gone. And that is why there's no more sacrifice in the Jewish system. Because they realized it doesn't work. It's actually gone gone okay now this for me is the crescendo of this text and by that will and remember what Laura said last week your will is not enacted until you die okay so here we have 
Father God and Jesus. It's both of their wills for this to happen. Jesus dies and enacts the will, which brings about the new covenant. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This was their will. And it's really important when you look at this word made holy here, another word for it is sanctified. Some translations will say being made holy in present tense or in future tense. And that's not right. When you go and look at the word and what it actually means, it says you are sanctified. You have been made holy. It's an accomplished fact, an absolute immovable fact. It's done. You can miss that. And so when you understand that that foundation is there and it's set and it's rock solid, then you realize my salvation is absolute. It's rock solid. I live out my Christian walk from this foundation of a secure salvation. I don't worry about rituals to deal with my sin the whole time. I don't worry about, oh, I made a mistake. I might lose my salvation. It's rock solid. It's done once and for all, an immovable fact. And you go from that foundation into your Christian walk and you run hard after God's calling and you run hard after the prizes and you run hard after the inheritance because you don't have to worry and spend time on all this nonsense. Okay. So now we're going to make sure we bring the youngsters back into the preach and I'm going to reintroduce Menti and hopefully not create too much stress for the back, the back office team, the AV team. So... Get your cameras out, your phones out. And I'm going to ask you two questions because I'm trying to, trying to show you what Jesus did relative to the world we live in. Because we hear these words in church, but how do they, what do they really mean? And so, mentees coming up. Thank you, Ray. Sorry for creating stress. And what you're going to do is you're going to take a photo of that QR code, and you'll get to log on. And if you just go to www.menti.com, M-E-N-T-I, doesn't want to stay. Just what's the code, my love? There we go. 36355389. Three six three five five three eight nine. www.menti.com. If it doesn't work, we can skip. Oh, there we go. It's there. Okay, it's coming up and down. You got it. Okay, there we go. Well done. And sorry. <laughs> So if you go on to Menti, and as you arrive on the homepage, you'll see a thumb. Just push the thumb, which means you're ready to go. So the first question, are you on? Is everybody there yet? Not yet. I'm rushing you. Okay, is it working, Josh? Has it worked? You good? I've got a thumbs up from my tech champion, my wife. I'm getting thumbs up. You've done Menti before last week, right? So this week it should be easier I'm seeing some thumbs. Okay, hit the thumbs. 
on this thingy, and then I know you're ready. Okay, so we can go next. Can you run it for me? Because I'm not logged on. So let's go to the next slide. Okay. There we go. So, what moment or invention do you think changed things in the greatest way in mankind's history? And you've got six options there. And I want you to just think about it and just rank them. The one will be the one that you think had the biggest impact and six the lowest. So, invention of the internet, World War II slash Hiroshima, the abolition of, sal- of slavery, landing on the moon, COVID, or 9-11. So those are the options, and you just quickly start voting against which ones you think had the biggest impact. Okay, invention of the internet is there at number one. Then it's the World War. Okay, let's keep voting. Let's see five of you have voted. It's, it's going up. It's going to be very interesting to see how we order this. Because these are things that have happened in our, in our relative near future, right? A near past. Very interesting. Oh, COVID was at the bottom and now it's uh, moved up a bit. Wow, look at that, eh? There must be a lot of youngsters here. Invention of the internets going, coming out first. Look at that. We've got some quick fingers. Now, my question is really, looks like invention of the internet is the greatest moment out of that list, okay? I appreciate the other things out there that you might say, Anthony, you should have put on that list. What did the internet do for you? Probably helped you trip and sin. Right? (laughs) Seriously, it probably turned out to be the big distraction for you, right? Maybe there was some good in it. I think there is. Okay. Interesting. So, the first thing was the internet. Second, World War II Hiroshima. Third, abolition of slavery. Now, that was a good thing. Fourth, COVID, 9-11, the moon. Yeah, that's that's old stuff. Okay, let's go on to the next one, please. So the next one's a whole lot easier. Which of these people do you think did the most good? Okay. So you've got some options there. Mother Teresa, Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, John G. Lake, Tutu, Einstein, Rosa Parks, Florence Nightingale, Wigglesworth. If you don't know who they are, then they clearly didn't do enough good. (laughs) Or you're too young. Let's see. Okay. Okay, you guys are getting the hang of this. Well done. So John G. Lake got a vote. Two. It's exciting. Interesting. So there we go. We have Mother Teresa, as voted by Lifehouse, did the most good out of those people. Okay. Now, it's an unfair question, and I fully appreciate that. Let me ask you this question. 
Which of these people died for you? None. Which of these people were able to change history backwards, present time, and forwards? None. So would you agree with me that there's no other human, businessman, politician, oligarch, or billionaire who comes close to Jesus? And these are great people. They don't come close. So whoever is your greatest model, the one you look up to the most, you know what? They're standing on a brick relative to Jesus standing on the top of Mount Everest. Let's just put things in perspective. Let's just put things in perspective. We've got a book at home. Laura's got this book, Speeches That Changed the World. And it's got Jesus in there, and it's got Winston Churchill and Stalin and da-da-da. I'm like, how can you put Jesus in that book with those people? Like, seriously, that's insulting. It is so insulting. We don't have a clue about the gravity of what Jesus did. Thank you, AV team. I owe you one. And my wife, thank you. All right. So I hope I've got the younger generation back because this is a tough question. What does this mean? Uno, one, one more. Last time, you're out. One more chocolate. And you know it's two more. Rich online, what does this mean? Listen to me. <laughs> See, I got a side bend in my finger. <laughs> P.W. Buerta. Hey? So this, this language in the scripture is once and for all, epi and hapax, and it means on one occasion only, once for all, conclusively once. I don't know how else to... So you see, Jesus did it once for all humanity, for all time. And it's the greatest thing that's been done on planet Earth. And it's the greatest disruption event of all time. Once and for all. No other human has done that. So let's keep going. We're nearly through the text. Halfway. So, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again and again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never, never, never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Sure. So here are some artistic depictions of Jesus seated on the throne, and they so underwhelm or underestimate or underdepict the hugeness of what Jesus did. And Jesus has sat down on the throne. And when you look at this text, you definitely see Jesus as the priest. And if you go back to Louisa's preach on Mali, Melchizedek, he was king and priest. And I'm like, Where's the king in this passage? And I never saw it until this morning. And, and if you go back, you'll see there, it talks about when the priest had offered, and then he sits down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. There's the king Jesus, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool, because it's referencing a scripture in 
the Old Testament where, where Joshua basically humiliated the earthly kings. So Jesus is king and high priest. And at the cross, he brings it back to God's original design. It was meant to be king and high priest, one person. So Jesus goes in as the king, the high priest, and he takes his own blood and he is the sacrifice. All in one. It's very powerful. So, verse 15 to 18. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Sorry, I need something out my bag. And um, we can see here that the Holy Spirit testifies to us about this new covenant. And he says something amazing here. I'll put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Now, when do you think was the inauguration of the old covenant? Probably Moses, Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments. Okay? Happy? I just want to remind you what happened there. And you can go look at these scriptures afterwards. In Exodus 19, verse 5 to 6, verse 9 and verse 24. Just give you the quick snapshot. Here's Moses going to the top of the mountain to meet God. God says, bring Aaron with you. Aaron doesn't listen. God says to Moses, wash your people, clean them, so they can come near to the mountain and hear my words when I speak to you. They were meant to be first-hand witnesses and hear what God said to Moses. Aaron doesn't go up the mountain. He stays at the bottom. The people are distracted by delay, and they fall back into the rituals they learned in the world of sacrifice. They miss out on what God does on the top of the mountain, and they don't hear because they were singing to the calf. Nuts. So ritual denies the power of God, and those old patterns will distract you and take you away from what God's trying to do. Okay? Now, that was funny. Where was the inauguration of the new covenant? Tricky question. Well, his blood was shed, he died. But it, you know, when the president gets inaugurated, and it's like, and then you know it's done when the king sits on the throne and they put the crown on his head, right? Seated on the throne, eh, Dale? So guess what? The ascension of Jesus is just before that final inauguration. Because in the one piece, it talks about he ascended into heaven and he went and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So here's your moment of inauguration. So where are they? They go to the Mount of Olives, which is the place of pressing. They're on top of the mountain. What does a mountain represent? A place of government and authority. The place where heaven meets earth. Okay, that's where they are. Now remember, the Mount of Olives overlooked the old temple. It looks onto the old temple of Jerusalem. So here they are on top of Mount of Olives. They don't know what's going to happen. They're looking at the old temple. Jesus gets ascended into heaven and goes and sits down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus goes into heaven as king and priest. Who does he leave behind on the mountain? His disciples. He doesn't leave behind two tablets of stone. He says, hey, disciples, I've taught you everything. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've written my laws, the things I want you to do on your hearts and minds. 
You are my tablets of stone that I'm leaving for my new covenant on the top of this mountain. Go from Mount Olives. And what does Jesus say to the disciples as part of that journey into the ascension? There's three things, right? If you go read the three accounts, he says, I give you all authority. First thing he says. Second thing he says is um, the Holy Spirit's coming to give you power. The third thing he says is go into all the world and be my witnesses. To do what? Establish the new covenant. And Jesus does that. Why? So we can stop spinning, getting caught up in rituals, things that are meaningless and don't have power, so we can have an intimate relationship with him. You see, the Holy of Holies is open. The veil is torn. There's an invitation. He's, seating on, he's sitting on the throne and he's saying, come in. Come sit on my lap. Come be with me. You won't die. The penalty is paid for. You don't have to spin your life. Come be with me. And so ultimately, this sacrifice is an invitation into the deepest, most beautiful intimacy and relationship with the Father, with Jesus. So Jesus Christ, once for all. Once for all. That sacrifice is the starting blocks for your race. You don't have to make them. 